So last week, um, if God is so good and powerful, why is there so much suffering? Looked at that one, so if you weren't here for that last week, you can um, download that one. and um, I thought it should be online, you can look at our attempt at that. And um, this week is, uh, can the Bible really be trusted? Now the way it works is I'm going to speak while I'm doing so. If you have questions, you text those questions to that number. So we'll probably keep that, actually, no, no, if we keep that slide up the whole time, thanks. Um, uh, and so you just text that through, and a friend of mine is fielding those questions, and whatever questions come through that we, that we think would probably be most helpful to handle together, I will attempt to answer them on my feet. Uh, if we don't get to your question, then please come and find me afterwards. We can talk one-on-one and try and help you with whatever it was that was on your mind. But please do, um, please do use that. We really want to be as helpful as possible. We're try- we, we, these are questions that many people genuinely wrestle with. And so we really want to try and help you to uh, just grapple with it and um, uh, come out clearer than how you came in. So that's the plan. Oh, by the way, my name's Steph. Sorry, for those of you who don't know me, I'm one of, the, one of the pastors here. So um, just to say, so the next few weeks, so we've got Remove the Bible and What Proof Is There for Christianity next week. Week after that, Christians only take the bits of the Bible they like. How messed up is that? Week after that, Can God Survive Evolution? Week after that, Is It Ever Right to Kill? Week after that, Is God Really Bothered About Sex, Porn and all that? So it's going to be a fun few weeks. And um, <laughs> if you, yeah, if you have... If, if I ever pop into your mind, please pray for me. Uh, so, but that's, so that's good. And then this thing here, you might find one of these near your seats. It's called the obstacle course. Uh, we're going to start running one of those on, um, I think it's March the 14th. Yeah. Uh, what it is, it's just a chance for you to, um, in a smaller setting, talk through some, maybe some more questions in depth, um, find out what the Bible says about certain things. So if you go to that website... You can put in your top three questions during the course. We will look at those questions and do our best to answer them. We just want to help people try and find their way, um, find their way to Jesus. Um, no one's going to lean on you to do that. You cannot be lent into the kingdom of Jesus, okay? You're going to be loved into the kingdom of Jesus. And uh, we, we won't coerce or pressurise because we know that when people come to Jesus, it's a work of God, something God does. So there's no pressure coming from our end. Uh, we just want to try and help you look at these things. So, okay, can the Bible really be trusted? I'm going to pray, Lord, please help me with this, um, help me to speak clearly, help me um, not to get mixed up and lost in stuff, help me not to be defensive or uh, tricky, help me to just be straightforward and I pray for the guys all that are listening here, I just pray Lord that you would help them, help them to even through these simple words that I speak, maybe to, I pray that you in your mercy would use them to shine some light in and bring some fresh facets and wonders of who you are into people's hearts, Amen. Uh, this will be sermon hell for some of you and sermon heaven for others of you. If you like dates and bits and bobs and facts, you're going to love it. If not, hang in there. It's important. It, uh, it's not okay to just say, oh, well, it doesn't matter about all that Bible stuff. I love Jesus. That's enough, isn't it? It's great to love Jesus. But how do you know who Jesus is? The Bible. So you've got to, we've got to look at the Bible and take it seriously. Um, this book I have in my hands is the world's uh, bestseller. By a mile. Okay, so easily the world's bestseller. Um, some countries it's not even allowed in. Um, it has to be smuggled in and people found in possession of it either forfeit their life or their freedom. Ironically, a lot of the countries where it is allowed in, it sits on the shelf neglected um, or is uh, mocked and scorned 
mercilessly. It's a strange old thing, I suppose that's, that's life, isn't it? No one likes a success story. <laughs> but uh, it's the world's bestseller, and as such, it, we need to give it some credibility, at least for that, and take it seriously as we look at it. Um, what have we got here? We've got 66 books. It's a compilation uh, written by approximately 35 different authors over approximately 1,600 years. That's what the Bible is. It's made up of fundamentally two halves. The Old Testament, uh, the writings before Jesus, and the New Testament, the writings from the time of Jesus onwards. So the Old Testament is basically the dealings of God with the Israelites uh, up to about 435 BC. And then the New Testament starts well, recording things from around 3 AD. Um, but would have been the earliest writings around, I guess, the late AD 50s, something like that. So it, it's, it's disputed, but um, there you go. Uh, what do Christians believe about the Bible? I want to start by just helping you understand, whether you're a Christian or not, what orthodox, no, that's the wrong word, because that's used to mean something else, what um, mainstream evangelical Christians believe about the Bible, just so you, we're kind of laying a bit of a, a foundation, and then we're going to start looking at things like reliability, historical Stuff, blah, blah, blah. So, firstly, Christians believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Now, by that we mean this, that in the writing of the Bible, that certain men were breathed upon by God, or were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, in that, their personality and style as people was not overridden by God. Which is why, as you read different books in the Bible, you find the style is very different. You see personalities coming through. So, inspiration by God doesn't mean that almost like a weird, I don't know, like God comes on you and you just kind of, you lose who you are and just start almost automatic writing. It's not like that. Um, that God honours the personality that he gives, but breathes and inspires uh, the writers um, as they were moved by God. So, a couple of quotes from the New Testament talking about, I guess, um, how the New Testament writers understood the Bible, understood the scriptures. Um, Peter says this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. That's how Peter understood scripture. Men moved by God, carried by the Spirit. Um, The Apostle Paul says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, number one. Number two, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. What is that? It's that the original Scriptures are without error. That's what Christians believe. That the original writings of Scripture do not contain error. Um, Now, this isn't saying that the people who wrote it were without error. It's not saying that Bible writers are perfect. Far from it. In fact, these Scriptures contain errors if you like, that the people who wrote the Bible uh, performed in their lives. Here's what I mean. For example, um, uh, in the book of Galatians, we read of Paul, the Apostle Paul, rebuking the Apostle Peter because he got it wrong. So the inerrancy of Scripture isn't, is, doesn't mean that those who wrote the Scriptures were perfect, infallible people. Not at all. But while they were writing Scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what they were writing was without error. It also doesn't mean that the copies that we have are necessarily without error. That the modern copies of the Bible that we have are without error. It doesn't mean that. It means inerrancy means that the original copies are without error. Uh, the modern copies, that's an issue of preservation, which we'll look at later. Thirdly, we believe in the authority of Scripture. So, inspired, inerrant, and authoritative. That because Scripture is breathed out by God and without error, therefore it's to be submitted to and obeyed. So we sit under it, 
not over it. That's the posture of the Christian. The Christian doesn't sit over it, judging it. He sits under it, being judged by it. We don't just take the bits we like and create our own Jesus. Oh, I like that. Oh, I'll have that. Oh, I don't like that. No. That's, that's the, that's, that is idolatry. That's making a God in your own image. We don't do that. But we sit underneath the scriptures. So, inspiration, inerrancy, authority. And then this word that I'm really struggling to pronounce. Perspicuity of scripture. Which really means, it's a, it's a posh word, for clarity of scripture. That actually the message is clear. That it's not an easy book to understand at every point. There's details that theologians scratch their head over. And people have debates over. And yet it's clear enough for us to know the essential truth of salvation. So it's clear that God is Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. It's clear that the person of Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. It's clear in the Bible that mankind was made in the image of God, but we've fallen from glory. The Bible's clear that God is holy. That means completely different, not like us. And, and he has a holy and jealous love for all people and gave up his one and only son in order to win us back. The Bible talks about, gives us a clear grasp of the meaning of the cross and the resurrection as central to our rescue. That being rescued and coming to know God is not about doing good things, but it's about what Jesus did for us. The Bible is clear on that. The Bible is clear we need to repent of our sin in order to get right with God. The Bible is clear on baptism, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection to come, eternal judgment and future glory for those in Christ. Okay? The Bible is clear on these things. Because of that, the issue of whether you understand it or not, in the main things, rests not so much on your academic ability. Do you know the original languages? Are you a professor? It rests on the state of your heart. Do you really want it to say that, or is that going to make life a bit uncomfortable? That's more the issue, but we'll get to that later. So we believe that Scripture is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and clear. But now we're going to get into the stuff that maybe some of you are here to find out about today, which is the, the canon of Scripture. How do we know these are the books that should be in here? How do we know there aren't books in here that shouldn't be? Or there aren't books left out that should have been in here? How did that whole thing work? So I'm going to help you understand how it came about that we now have these books in the Bible and not other books. First of all, what does the word canon mean? The canon of Scripture means list. Okay? So all these fancy words, they just mean normal things really. Okay? List. This is the, the list of Scripture. The books that you receive as Scripture and not just nice writings. So uh, let's look at the Old Testament canon first of all. The bit before, the, the Jewish writings before Jesus came. Why have we got, why is it those books and not other books? Okay, first you've got to understand Jewish society, three offices of leadership, kings, priests and prophets. One of the prophets' jobs was to observe society, see what was going on, see, and, and really interpret what God was doing and then record what God was doing. So you find the vast majority of the Old Testament was recorded, was scribed by prophets. From Moses to Samuel to Isaiah, Jeremiah and all the other prophets. So that was the role of the prophets. Really, really important that you understand that as you follow the argument through. Historically, chronologically, the last two books of the Old Testament are Malachi and Esther. Both written around the time of the of the of the completely around the time of the death of King Artaxerxes, 435 BC. After 435 BC, a period of history was entered by the Jewish people, which they came to refer to as the silence of heaven. All 
prophecy stopped. There was no longer anyone prophesying in a convincing way. The whole thing changed. Um, And that was generally understood and received and accepted by the Jewish people. There was no prophet and no genuine prophecy until John the Baptist turned up on the scene. That's why he caused such a stir. Have you ever wondered why all of Judea went out to the desert to see this guy dressed really weird and acting really weird? You think, why would the whole of Judea go out? Here's why they recognised prophet after 435 years of silence. It's like, imagine last time we had a prophecy was 1580. The year 1580. Just to give you some perspective here. That was a long time ago. Life was very different then. What was it? Would it have been just the end of the Tudor reign? Before the English Civil War? I mean, man, a long time of silence. And so there was this prophetic silence and then John the Baptist turned up. He was a real big deal. Now, there were these other writings that happened between 435 BC and John the Baptist, and they're what we call the Apocrypha. Various writings, books called things like Maccabees and other books like this, and it's Jewish history. However, at the time, the Jewish people did not put it on a par with Scripture. They valued it, uh, they they looked after it, they treasured it as their history, but they did not accept it as Scripture, they did not see it as written by prophets. Even in the literature itself, it refers to the fact that there are no prophets during this season. And so you may have heard of this, this thing, Apocrypha, okay? That's the writings between, in that silence of heaven period. But the Jews themselves did not accept them as scripture, and they were not deemed worthy of inclusion. Um, so I'll give you a little quote here from Josephus, who was a historian, shortly after the time of Jesus. He said this, From Artaxerxes until our own time, the complete history has been written, but it's not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. The prophets finished. There was this period of silence. So the writings we call the Apocrypha, although reliable and helpful records of Jewish history during this period, were not considered worthy of inclusion in the canon of, by the Jews themselves. Um, then Jesus turns up. So John the Baptist comes and starts pointing to Jesus. Jesus turns up and Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament quote the Old Testament 295 times. It's important. Because what it shows is is that Jesus and the apostles acknowledged the Old Testament to be scripture and they quoted 30 of the 39 books in the Old Testament but they never once directly quoted the Apocrypha. It's important. Because it's showing you and Jesus never had a dispute with the religious leaders about what books are in and what books are out and believe me, they had a lot of disputes about a lot of things but that wasn't one of them. It was agreed upon by the Jewish people, by Jesus, by the apostles that is the Old Testament canon, that the Holy Spirit who inspired scripture and the prophets um, had departed since Haggai, Zechariah and and Malachi, but then there was this moment comes and it's all changed again now, we're rolling again at the arrival of John the Baptist who points um, to Jesus okay let me just make sure I know where I'm at here I'm reading my notes much more than normal because this is this is some heavy stuff here so I want to make sure I serve you guys well what of the Roman Catholic Bible? Because that includes the Apocrypha. How did that happen? Well, history would seem to suggest around 404 AD, the Pope, at this point, the scriptures were in Greek, um, but the dominant empire is the Romans, who spoke Latin. And so the Pope's thinking we need to get the scriptures written in Latin. Who's the best scholar around? They come up with Jerome, great Hebrew and Greek scholar. And so they asked Jerome if he will write the scriptures in Latin, uh, 
and the Apocrypha, please. According to history, Jerome says no, the Pope says yes. Jerome says no, the Pope says yes. So Jerome writes uh, the Latin scriptures, including the Apocrypha, but it wasn't till 1546, fairly recently in the grand scheme of things, that the Roman Catholic Church officially pronounced the Apocrypha to be part of their scripture. Now why? Well, it's suspected that 1546 was the Council of Trent right bang in the middle of the Reformation when Martin Luther was beginning to say things like, there's no such thing as purgatory. And we don't get saved by works, we get saved by grace. Well, some of the writings in the Apocrypha talk about purgatory and talk about being saved by works. And so at that point, big dispute going on, Martin Luther and the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church say, we acknowledge this as Scripture, this is Scripture, because it backs up arguments about purgatory and salvation by works. So but you can look up that. But that's, that's, so there's a rough, a rough background there of the Old Testament canon. What about the New Testament canon? Why are these books in the New Testament and not other ones and blah, 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 blah? Well, all of you that have seen you know, the Da Vinci Code and all of that, you'll be familiar with words like the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Thomas and all this kind of thing. And there's quite a lot of conspiracy about that there was basically what happened was is that the church got really powerful and wanted to hold on to its power and it kept certain books out of the Bible that would really get in the way and cause problems for them. Let's look at that together, shall we? And uh, we'll look at that together and really just try and um, uh, figure that out. Okay, the New Testament is the story of Jesus Christ, okay? That's what it is. That's really the whole idea uh, with it. And like I said earlier, the curtain opens on John the Baptist. Uh, the whole of Judea going out to him because suddenly a prophet has arrived. Now, vitally, this prophet, John the Baptist, points to this Jesus as Messiah, the one who's been promised. And the way Jesus speaks is shockingly different. Have you ever wondered why people were so shocked by the way he spoke? Because up to this point, if you're a prophet, you would say, thus says the Lord. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, I say to you. That's really different. See, a prophet points, thus says the Lord. The Lord is saying something, and I'm speaking on his behalf. Jesus says, I say to you. And that's what got him into a lot of trouble, and why he was actually, in the end, he was uh, arrested for blasphemy. Because these claims, he was, he was made, you know, I forgive your sins. He was doing things more than, way more than just a prophet would do. Jesus appears and he's far more than that. So Jesus, the Messiah, shortly before his crucifixion, predicts that the apostles will, by the Holy Spirit, have the ability to recall the words that he spoke to them. In John fourteen twenty six, Jesus says this, The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So that's a really important moment there where where Jesus is saying to the apostles, the Holy Spirit's going to come and actually you've got a special role in terms of writing down the things I've said. You're going to be reminded of the things I've said in an accurate way by the Holy Spirit. And so the apostles were being entrusted with something big there. Now, are you still with me? You're doing great. Ephesians 2 verse 20 talks about God's house, the church, being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now you can take that a number of ways, but I think one good way uh, of taking it it, it, is this. Is that uh, the house of God is built in part on Jesus Christ, who is built on Jesus Christ, (laughs) but a vital part of that is it's built on the scriptures who point to Jesus Christ. All the scriptures old and new point to Jesus. We'll look at that later. Okay? But it's a massive, important, foundational part of the house of God. It's the scriptures. It's the Bible. Now remember, here Paul is saying in Ephesians 2.20 that the house of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Remember the Old Testament? How do we know what's Old Testament scripture? The prophets. The things they recorded and saw. What about New Testament? The apostles. 
There's a, there's a special calling on the apostles to set and establish what is this doctrine of Christianity. Now, so 2 Peter 3 verse 1 and 2 is an important scripture. He says this. He says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles, New Testament. Now, the next question is this. Is there any evidence that the apostles themselves thought that they're writing to a scripture? Does the New Testament anywhere ever talk about the New Testament of Scripture? You see, because if you find writing and reading, uh, writing about the Scripture in, in the New Testament, it's normally talking about the Old Testament. There was no compiled New Testament at that point. The Bible was the Old Testament. So actually, okay, how do we know that the New Testament guys thought what they were writing was Scripture? There's two very, very helpful verses here. The first is 2 Peter 3 verse 16, where Peter says this. He's, he's, this is very encouraging Scripture, because he's, he's writing about Paul's writings. At this point in the church life, there was, Paul's writings had been collected and were being circulated and he says this about them there are some things in them that are hard to understand yes even peter found some of paul's writings hard to understand great okay so we're on good ground but listen which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures that's an interesting turn of phrase what peter's saying there is these are scriptures too Peter considers the collection of Paul's writing as scripture. And then in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul says this. It's Paul now, different writer. He says this. The scriptures say, you must not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. Two quotes, Paul saying scripture. Or the first quote, you must not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, is from Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. Great. Where's the second quote from? The labourer deserves his wages. You can search your whole Old Testament, it's not in there. Why? Where is it? It's from Luke. Luke 10 verse 7. So Paul is now quoting Luke as scripture. So both Peter and Paul quote and talk about New Testament writings and refer to them as scripture. That's a very, very important point. So, if it's, to do, if it's about apostles, Paul and Peter writing, then what do we do with Mark, Hebrews and Jude? Because Mark wasn't an apostle. No one knows who wrote Hebrews. <laughs> and Jude wasn't an apostle. Well, number one. It seems like very consistent history is this. We know that Mark was travelling with Peter, because Peter refers to him in 1 Peter, travelling together. And history records, pretty consistently, that Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel. Peter's speaking, Mark's writing it down. So, on that sense, that was why it was accepted into the canon. Jude. Jude's association with James, the apostle. Brothers, gets him in. Hebrews. Who wrote Hebrews? No one's got a clue. Um, Why is it accepted then? It's accepted due to the intrinsic quality of the book. John Calvin said this, we don't know who wrote it, but the glory of Christ shines forth from every page. (laughs) So it's always been been included in the earth. No one's ever, you know, other than scratching their head over the the authorship, everyone, you know, everyone loves Hebrews. So uh, it's an amazing book. So it's in. Um, that's the reality, that's how it is. Now, the, something that troubles some people is that the first list, the first official list of the New uh, Testament canon, the list is 367 AD. You think, man alive, that's a long time after Jesus' time. 367, and it troubles people. Why did it take so long? Was it a conspiracy of men? Okay, let me just say this. That is true, it was a long time. However, however, there are nine volumes of writing before that period 
which quote time and time again all the New Testament books, not leaving one out, not adding any extra. So at 367 AD, it was officialised, it was kind of written down in a sense, this is the canon. But up until that point, if you read the literature, there was a lot of consistency around these books. And so actually it goes uh, um, way before that. Uh, Hebrews, now, now you start thinking, okay, one more question on this. What about if someone was to write a book today and say, Scripture, what do we do with that? The Book of Mormon, for example, only 150 years old. How do we know that's not really a revelation? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, Hebrews 1 helps us with this. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2 says this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That's a big deal. There's a finality about the way God has spoken in Christ. Okay? That's what he's saying. God spoke to the prophets, now he's spoken through Jesus, and he calls in the heir of all things, looking at the end, to whom he created all things in the beginning. The whole Jesus Christ is the full, uh, conclusive uh, filling out of the purposes of God. Uh, and, and the New Testament that we have is written by those that either were with Jesus or were alongside those who were with Jesus, except for Hebrews, but what the heck, it's all about Jesus. So... That, that, so that's a really important verse because it means actually if I suddenly start writing this thing and think, oh, this is flowing nicely, maybe, maybe it's inspired, you know. <laughs> and the next bit next you get here, this little leaf on all of your chairs and this, you know, the book of Stephen, you know. <laughs> Burn it, reject it, tear it up, leave this church. Uh, because I've gone crazy. What I've, start, I've, start, I've got illusions of grandeur. I've moved away from the thing. I've not walked with the earthly Jesus. I have no personal association with those who did. That's not how it is. I was not entrusted to do that. I've been entrusted to be faithful with what's been deposited. So that's how we know this thing. Um, what about some of the other books, like the Gospel of Thomas and other books called like One Clement, blah, blah, blah? Well, either they discount themselves, i.e. in the actual writing they say, this isn't scripture, or they're just plain weird. Like, really weird. Do you know They say things and you're like, oh, it's just like so not in line with the Gospel. It contradicts the Gospel. So there would be, so just, you know, you want to, it, don't get freaked out like Dan Brown, the Gospel of Judas. Just read it. It's just so weird. You'd be like, oh, no wonder it's not, no wonder it's not God's word. It's just crazy. So that's, you know, so you can do that. There's nothing to fear on that front. Okay, we've done the canon. I want to just quickly now do the preservation of Scripture or the historicity of it. How do we know it's been preserved accurately? Blah, 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 blah. You know, often we're open to the charge, you know, Christians, it's corrupted and all of that. So let's look at this. Okay. Well, first of all, um, a very common quote is, this can't be trusted. This can't be trusted historically. It was just written by people. So is all history. That's what history is. How do you know about World War I? You weren't there. How do you know about the Romans, the Tudors, the Vikings? Well, people have written it down. You, you can't say it's not history because someone wrote it. That's what history is. On, on every front. So that, 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 that's not a clever argument to start with. So just to say that, don't throw the thing out because it's been written by people. All history has. Um, so we need, a, we need some uh, more robust arguments than that. Um, Okay, do we trust this New Testament? Let's start with the New Testament. Do we trust it, and if so, why? Well, can we get the table up? I just want to show you some stuff that might help you here. Um, this, now, the writing's quite small for some of you guys. It's, what it is, you've got a load of uh, ancient authors there. The date they wrote, the earliest copy that we have to hand now, 
and then the approximate time span between the original that was written and the earliest copy we have and the number of copies we have. And that helps us just to understand things like accuracy. So I'm just going to pull out two examples before the New Testament. First is Plato. You've all heard of Plato. He wrote between 427 and 347 BC. The earliest copy we have, though, is 900 AD. So that's 1,200 years... The earliest copy of Plato's writing we have is nine, the, the, that, is nine, that was written or transcribed 900 years after the original stuff was written down, and we have um, seven, uh, tw- so 12, sorry, so 1,200 years, and we have seven copies. And yet people would look at the writings of Plato and quote them, and it's the writings of Plato, but it's only seven copies, and you know. So, or, or look at uh, what about Homer, Homer's Iliad here, because he's he's doing a bit better. Wrote around 900 BC, earliest copy 400 BC. That's still a 500 year gap, and we've got 643 copies. Now, the estimate of that means that it'll be about 95% accurate. But the New Testament was written in the first century. Our earliest copies are from the second century, so it's less than 100 years between them, and there's 5,600 copies, which puts it at 99.5%. So, and that's just objective facts, you know. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty accurate. Um, it's very accurate. As, as far as ancient history goes, it's uniquely, it's uniquely accurate. So we've got, you know, if you're a believer, you can be fortified by that. If you're someone who's not sure where you're at and you've been questioning this, maybe I'll just provoke you with that. So don't just, you know, I've been on the internet a lot this week, as you, as you can probably imagine. There's some crazy stuff out there. So much opinion, so many agendas, and you know. Real cocksure stuff that's often nonsense, but it's spoken with real authority. You know, I would just say, don't go to Yahoo Answers if you want to go anything theological. <laughs> it's mad. It's just madness. It's fun, but you don't stay there long. But, uh, you know, it really is, you know. But, of course, someone says this crazy thing, and then this one's got five million likes, you know. But it's just because the person said what someone wanted to hear. You've got to, you've got to dig a bit deeper. So, anyway, I thought that would be um, helpful there to put that up. Um, but the, the, the charge of corruption doesn't really stick. Yeah, um, I know that uh, some of our Muslim friends will be particularly keen on this whole thing. The Bible's corrupted, and unlike the Quran, let's just say it doesn't it doesn't stick. So, um, so now, what, what also what we see in the New Testament helps us trust the Old Testament, as I've spoken um, already. It was quoted many many times by Jesus and the New Testament writers. Let me just show you this: when talking of marriage, when resisting temptation, when making sense of who John the Baptist was, when responding to charges of breaking the Sabbath, when predicting his own. Ex- and resurrection, when addressing Jews about spiritual dullness, when charging hypocritical and spiritually bankrupt religious leaders, when making sense of Judas's betrayal. In all these things, Jesus makes specific reference to the Old Testament, often directly quoting it. Jesus says things like, the scriptures can't be broken. Jesus says things like, until heaven and earth pass away, not one dot or, or, or iota will pass from the law. Jesus and the disciples understood him as the fulfilment of all that had been written beforehand and frequently refer to that. In fact, when Jesus rises from the dead and appears to some disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke, he says this to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, Old Testament, have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, that's the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, all the rest, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. The whole darn thing was pointing to him. That's the point. That's the point. It's historically deep. We can be confident with this book. I'm not going to talk on the interpretation of scripture. For example, well, is it an eye for an eye or is it turn the other cheek? That's two weeks' time. 
hermeneutics, the interpretation of scripture. Why do we take some things and leave others? We're looking at that in two weeks' time. Um, I want to just say a few things to, to conclude in its question time. Firstly, the faithfulness of God and scripture. If I said to you, I want to give you a million pound, and you wanted to know for sure that you could hold me to that, what would you ask me to do? Put it in... Put it in writing. If I put it in writing, it's yours. You can hold me to it. I just see something of the beautiful faithfulness of God in giving us a scripture. It's in writing. We haven't got to wonder, what, what mood is God in today? It's not like that. Well, does he still love me? It's all in there. It's all required. Any time of day or night, I turn to it. God has demonstrated his love once for all in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. I know he loves me. It's the faithfulness of God. I want you to understand that. The second thing I want to talk about is actually the scrutiny of Scripture. That Scripture scrutinises us, really. It, it does. The Bible gets to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the human heart. That's really what the issue is here. I don't think the question is so much, is it believable, as much as, will I bow the knee? Will I let him love me? Will I let him change me? These are the deep questions. You know, Jesus said this in John 7. He said, if anyone's will is to do God's will. If anyone wants to know God's will, basically, he said, he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. That's a very, very important quote. If you really want to know God's will, then you'll know when you read the teaching of Jesus whether it's from God or not. Because it's about what you really, what, what do you want to know? Do you want to follow the Lord? And then just quickly, the story of Scripture, what's it about? It's about this, the Father loves you. Listen to this quote. The whole Bible, St. Augustine observes, does nothing but tell of God's love. It is, to, it is, so to say, full of it. That is, this is the message that supports and explains all the other messages. The love of God is the answer to all the whys in the Bible. The why of creation, the why of the incarnation, the why of redemption. If the written word of the Bible could be changed into a spoken word and become one single voice, this voice, more powerful than the roaring of the sea, would cry out, The Father loves you. Everything that God does and says in the Bible is love. Even God's anger is nothing but love. God is love. It has been said that it is not so important to know whether God exists or not. What is important is to know whether he is love. And the Bible assures us that he is love. That's the story of the book. And that's why it's so darn dangerous. Because love, this love, this holy, wild, fierce, free love of God is utterly life transforming. It just turns you on your head, if you let it. If you don't tame it, if you let it. And then I think I just want to end on this before we do some questions, which is the delight of Scripture. There's no getting away from the fact that when the Holy Spirit works authentically in your life, it leads to a hunger and a thirst for the Bible that is inexplicable. And it really does. It's not a slavish, or a slavish kind of, I ought to read the Bible now. It's a hunger for the words of God, a desire to know God better, that's what leads to the discipline. Listen to the way King David talks about the scriptures. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Listen to this. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. This is what the gracious work of the Holy Spirit does in the human soul. It's supernatural. It's just a supernatural thing. And even as a believer, you can domesticate it. You can tame it. You can get all religious about it. You can make it sterile. But at its heart, at its heart, God is about a passionate, a 
passionate and glorious life-giving work in our hearts. So there it is. I've done my best. I'm now open to questions from the floor. Dave Menz. Right, so <coughs> there's tons here, so we won't catch them all. Dave. Oh, Mike, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it really helps the guys if you can. Thank you. Cheers. Okay, so, yeah, there's tons, so we won't get to them all, unfortunately. But um, first one, if the Bible's inerrant, what about contradictions? Uh, and the example given here is Ecclesiastes 1.4 says the earth remains forever. Revelation 21.1 says the first earth had passed away. Okay. Yeah, great. There's a couple of things you could say on that. Um, one is, in terms of the Bible being a collection of books, means that different books are in different genres. Okay, so some of it's poetry, some of it's historical narrative, some of it's prophetic, some of it's apocalyptic. So, like uh, any reading that anyone would do with any literature, you need to know what is the genre of this book or this particular part of the book. And that's part of hermeneutics, interpreting scripture, we look at in a couple of weeks' time. So, for example, if, I, if you gave me some poetry to read or the newspaper to read, before I actually start reading, I log what it is and it affects the way I read it. Does that make sense? And so, likewise, in that, so, um, so Ecclesiastes would be very, uh, it's, a, it's a wisdom literature and very, very poetic. So, in that sense, what he's probably talking about, I don't know the exact bit off, part, off by heart, but I imagine he's talking about the sense of the permanence of the earth compared and contrasted to the fleeting, transient nature of our life where we come and we go, but the earth remains. It would be probably something like that. Um, if you wanted to get really pedantic about it and say, oh yeah, but hold on, if you really wanted to do that, then I would just simply say this, that actually probably when the Bible talks about the new heavens and the new earth, it's probably talking about a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. So most likely we'll still be this planet, but utterly renewed. But there you go, that's if you wanted to get really fussy about it. In terms of other contradictions, we'd be really happy to just engage one and one with you about that. We can look at them. I, I might not know the answer. I can go back and find out for you and try and be as helpful as possible on that. Um, but really happy to look at those things. Uh, so, all history is written by people, as you said, yes. but those people often have an agenda, so that yeah. thing of, you know, history is written by the victors. How do we know the Bible doesn't fit into that? I guess probably the best way to try to answer that, this is, this is really terrifying, by the way, just so you all know that, so, uh, the is, to, is, to, is to look at the fact that the Bible records plenty of defeats, but you could probably, you could potentially argue there are more disasters for God's people in the, throughout the Scripture than triumphs. You could potentially argue that. Um, you know, the, sac- the, the I mean, if you just take the Old Testament, the whole of Judges is really the book of the failure of God's people to really be faithful to Him, and it ends with them being utterly ejected from their nation and from their and their temple being destroyed. I mean, these are the people that claim they serve the God of all heaven and all earth. It's really honestly recorded. The heroes of the Bible, David, it records his adultery and his murder. Samson, complete joker. Uh, I mean, ju- honestly, mighty heroes of the Bible, the way they lived was often like, you know, you just left thinking, why did you do that? And it's recorded. It is so warts and all um, that it is encouraging, <laughs> it's deeply encouraging if you are messed up as I am uh, and as we all are. Uh, and we see the love of God and the redemptive power of God to even bring about his final victory through that kind of mess. So the Bible is not a triumphalistic book. Um, so maybe just dig into that and get around that. That should, that's probably the main thing to say on that at the moment. Uh, this one's a, probably a quick one, but you know when you so when you showed the chart and it had the his, the sort of accuracy, yeah. that ninety nine point five percent accuracy. Are you saying that ninety nine 
99.5% of the Bible is accurate or that there's a 99.5% likelihood that the Bible is accurate. <laughs> yes, quite, yeah. yeah, no. There's, so, for example, the, the former, the former, 99.5% of, of the Bible is accurate. So there will be things in here where there will be a footnote and it will say something like, or it could be this. Either because it's unclear in the original language what the emphasis is or because of the, 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 uh, different manuscripts that have been discovered at different points seem to be saying slightly different things, which one's, which one's the right one. Archaeology is a real movable feast. And so basically you're always waiting for more discoveries which then tend to tip things this way or that way. We found some more manuscripts, blah, blah, blah. So in that sense, it, it, there will be little be bits and bobs in our modern day scriptures where it's a question mark and you think, but it does not in any way uh, affect or influence um, the, the message and the clarity of the main things that I've spoken about and the vast majority of detail. Okay. Um, a couple of questions about like translations. So, um, right. Uh, so one is basically which translation should, you know is better than you know which is the best so are some are some more accurate than others and then yeah. a similar question was you know basically you get you get your translations one says one thing one says one seems to have a different meaning yes. what do i do with that yeah <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got, if you imagine like a, like a scale, and at this end you've got uh, highly, highly accurate. At this, at this end you've got, we've tried to make it as fun and readable as possible, and, 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 you've, and then you have to plot certain translations on that, on that kind of scale, if you like. So there are some that, are, you've got the Cockney Bible. Great read. It's a brilliant read. Um, you know, don't use it for scholarly study, but it's a great read. It, that's right over there. Uh, then you've got the message written by a pastor called Eugene Peterson. I've, I mean, the guy he knows his original languages. He's a great scholar, but it's a paraphrase. He's not tried. To, it's 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 not a it's not a translation. I guess you'd have to say it's an interpretation. But it's a wonderful thing to have alongside, you know, your your proper Bible, if you like. Um, right over this end, probably. Probably other than those, other than and other than other, bleh, other than unless you have the original language yourself and you can do it that way, then probably at this end in English is the NASB, New American Standard Bible. Not great for public reading; it's a bit clunky, but probably the most literal. And then quite shortly next to that, close by, would be the ESV, which we use here because it flows nicely for public reading, but it's right over the literal end. And then um, further a little bit along, we'd have the NIV. And then the good news. <laughs> uh, this is quite a. I like this one. Uh, why, <laughs> this is the bad one. <laughs> why didn't Jesus write his own gospel? Don't know. <laughs> I, what you got to understand is this: is that what what part, what part of what I do isn't I don't do speculation. I've got no authority from speculation. I just do revelation. Okay. So the Bible says uh, uh, the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us. Okay. So there's a whole lot of stuff we don't know. But it belongs to God. So for us to get into endless conversations about that, it's futile. There is no conclusion. But some things have been revealed to us. They belong to us. God has given them to us. And we can rest our life on them. Cool. Um, <laughs> right. Um, Maybe last one. Yeah, let's make this last one. Sorry, I'm just... Uh, so... Isn't it a cop out to? A, a, I don't know if he said this, so I don't. Know if it's, so, isn't it a cop out to appeal to a scribe's mistake to get out of a contradiction or a mistake in scripture? Isn't that like a, a get out clause? Uh, 
I guess it's quite in some ways because I don't think we've I don't think we've looked at that today. Yeah, it feels a bit hypothetical. Yeah, no. To be honest, I, re- I just thought I'd read that one because I thought maybe I missed it because I was so busy writing down other ones. So I'm okay. going to give you another one as okay. your last one. Uh, <clears throat> when or how do I apply scripture? So, for example, when Jeremiah says, "I knew you when you were formed," how do I know that God wasn't just talking to Jeremiah yes. then? Um, yes, 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 everyone? yes. Very good indeed. That's an excellent question. What we'll do, I mean, I guess there's some principles. We'll take that particular example. I knew you before you were born. That's God speaking to Jeremiah. God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet. He's completely intimidated by the task. I'm too young. I'm unqualified. So God says, like, I knew you before you were born, and I marked you out as a prophet. And so in that sense, you know, it's something being spoken to Jeremiah for his, for his good. Um, so then, is that just for Jeremiah? Can we, is, is any of that for us? Well, what you do is you weigh scripture against scripture. That's how you understand. So then you'd probably go to Psalm 139, where King David is speaking about being knitted together in his mother's womb. Um, and I think it would be a bit weird to, to teach that God knitted together David, obviously it's figurative, but knitted together David in his mother's womb, but didn't us. It's, a bit, it's just a bit odd. Um, I think you'd have to say that what he's opening up there is something that is human-wide, that is universal, that is for us. And so I would then take that, and I would come over to the Jeremiah passage and say, well, look, maybe God didn't call me to be a prophet before I was born, but he definitely knew me, and he definitely put me together. And then I would go to Ephesians 2, verse 8, and I would go, oh, he's got, he's got good works prepared in advance for us to do. So I'd say, well, I might not be a prophet to the nations, but God's got some really lovely stuff for me. So I'm pulling other scriptures and bringing them into that. Okay. All right, great, brilliant. Well, what we're going to do now is we're going to give first the opportunity for anyone here who, you know, literally... You think, I want to know Jesus. And now we haven't got to make it, make it into like, how can I describe it? Uh, a big mystical moment. Um, when I came to know Jesus, I, literally, I was in a meeting and everyone was doing their thing, singing and all that. And I just said, Jesus, I'm all yours. I, I said it and I meant it. And he changed me forever. It's 21 years ago. And, um, it's, you know, he just changed me. You know, I was amazed. My mum, who was a Christian who, and who was praying for me, couldn't even believe it had happened. Um, my friends all said, laughed at me. My, mate, my best mate said, ah, yeah, you'll be getting off with some girl this time next year in this pub garden. And I, was, when I took him out for a drink to tell him that I'd become a Christian. Everyone thought it was crazy. Even I was amazed. But I'd said to Jesus, I'm all yours, and I meant it, and he changed me. And uh, so it's not, it's not like a manipulative, you know, you've got to do something. Someone's got to come over and pray for you and push you over or any of that, right? You, just, you can just come to Jesus. Yeah, you just come to Jesus and he'll change your life. Jesus promises that he won't turn anyone away who comes to him. It's not about being good. Wait till you're good enough. It's nonsense. The whole idea is that you're not good enough. You realise you need forgiveness, so you come to Jesus. That's how it works. It's the grace of God. It's salvation by grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. Okay? I, I'm not up here because I'm Mr. Holy. I've been made holy and made righteous as a gift by being joined with Jesus, who is holy and righteous in himself. And he will give you that same gift, and he will give you that same grace.